0: Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today, we're talking with Owen Johnson, author of 40 Classic Crude Oil Trades, Real Life Examples of Innovative Trading. The book is published by Routledge on the 30th of January, 2022. Owen has a 20-year career in and around the oil markets and has unprecedented access to the oil trading community. He's a managing director at CME and is the head of global research. As always, if you enjoy the episode, please support us by liking posts on LinkedIn about episodes and also giving us five-star reviews on the platform you're listening on. I hope you enjoy the episode. Owen, thanks for joining. Great to speak to you, Paul. I'm excited to have this discussion. We're talking about your book, released on the 30th of this month, January 2022, and the book is 40 Classic Crude Oil Trades. It would be great if you could just set
1: us up, you know, how how you came to write this book, basically, and and what the, the goal is. Yeah, so actually the idea came to me while I was having a drink in the pub. Uh, I'm ashamed to admit. I was having a drink in a pub with uh, a well-known crude oil trader called Adi sirovich, and he was telling me a really good story about one of his favourite trades that he carried out when he was at Texaco. And I thought then, how many great stories have I heard about trades over the years? I've been lucky enough to know crude oil traders for the last 20 years, more or less. And I've heard so many good stories. And I thought, isn't it a shame that no one – really gets to hear these stories apart from the traders themselves and the people who get to hang out with them. And I thought it'd be really nice if we could get some of these traits to a wider audience that might really appreciate the kind of ingenuity that goes into oil trading.
0: Yeah. Cause it's also, it's a, it's a very secretive world by its nature, right? So much of a, a, an oil traders we're about to discover and people, listeners probably know is, you know, it's about information and having proprietary information and I guess in that gap of lack of knowledge, has, you know, there's a, there's a lot of mythology about oil traders. There's there's even some negativity. Um, so it's uh, it's great to have sort of archetypal trades elucidated and, and and discussed.
1: Yeah, absolutely right. There's almost a strange tension because oil companies don't really like to talk about the specifics of trade or trading, you know, for obvious reasons. But traders themselves tend to be you know, very open, very personable, you know, they like to chat with one another. They, it's just, you have to, I think, be within that circle of trust. So, you know, fair play to the 40 people who spoke to me on the record about their trades, that they've been willing to go out there and extend that circle of trust to, to anyone who buys the book.
0: Yeah, I mean, and that's the that's what's so enjoyable about the book is you're you're brought into that circle. Um, so forty trades are described. Can you just tell us how you went about organizing the book? How you thought about sort of capturing
1: this story? Yeah, so I actually went uh, in the end thematically. So I had a section of trades on arbitrages, micro versus macro trading, spot versus term trading around storage trading derivatives so i kind of broke it down that way um you could dip into it and read it in your own way to be honest you could read it chronologically i've got trades from the early 70s and the birth of oil trading right through to a post-pandemic trade from last late last year or you could read it geography by geography you could read the russian chapters or the asian chapters so i went with i went with that theme by trade but Really, I think I don't want to be prescriptive. You can choose your own adventure. Yeah, and can you just describe how the book is set up? Because it's
0: you, you've essentially got forty different contributors talking about a specific trade or, or or macro event and how they traded it.
1: How did you select these individuals? How did you get them to go on the record? You know, <laughs> well, I, I guess I was fortunate enough to know some of them already um, through through my work and you know over many years so there was a level of trust there and then from that I expanded out to people they recommended people they admired some of in some cases their mentor um and then I approached people who whose reputation I'd heard of or there were rumors of great traits they'd done or interesting traits they'd done and you know I was fortunate I think because it was locked down at the time I was writing this so this was last year and certainly one of the motivations for me was just to get talking to people again and, you know, enjoy my market once more because I was prevented from traveling or meeting people. And I think luckily for me, that's how some of the contributors felt. I think they felt happy to be talking about their careers and their events and you know, reminiscing about something different. And I think that there was that lockdown spirit where we were all, I guess, a bit more open to taking calls. Than we might have been done might have been when we were in busy in the office
0: yeah i can i can empathize that's how the uh, podcast got started as well oh, there you twisting, go. <laughs> a, twisting a few friends arms to be guests um so i can see how this has will certainly have appeal to the the current energy trading community particularly oil traders but also it feels like it will have a much broader appeal to the general public in terms of what actually goes on and the breadth and the scope of what in gets encapsulated in that word oil trading before we dig into some uh, talk a, a couple of stories in the book i think we've highlighted four that kind of give us that scope and the breadth of the
1: book what are your goals for this book i think partly to demystify oil trading so as you said so rightly Not many people get to know an oil trader, and if they do, they don't get to hear his work stories or her work stories. So I think just opening that door and letting people see how people think, who they are, they're not this breed apart, they're people who are very good at what they do and have a very interesting job. So that was partly, it, I guess, partly um, instructional. So, yeah, I was thinking what would a young person who might want to get into trading or might want to get into the energy industry what might they want to know what might be interesting about these people who have learned so much and experienced so much and then honestly thirdly the it's it's there's some entertainment i want the reader to be entertained i want him to enjoy the stories or there's there's humor in there some of the traits are you know by nature funny some of the opinions are interesting so I guess I didn't want it to be super heavy. It's not a textbook, it's not a guide to oil trading. It's a mixture of reminiscences and anecdotes.
0: Yeah, but I think in that captures so much, you know, understanding the the role and the, the breadth of that role. So okay, so let's 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 start off with one of the four that we've selected. Previous guest on the podcast. I think we did a two-part episode on uh, on the nature and future of oil trading with with Colin Bryce. His uh, chapter is called Night Flight to Siberia. And I guess I wanted to pick this one because I feel like it immediately, and it's the first chapter in the book, but it immediately highlights and draws you into a world that this isn't just coming across a price, coming upon a price and you know the, the volume, this how encompassing and holistic an oil trade can be. So the chapter starts with, with Colin making a bit of a hair-raising flight to Siberia. Can you just set the scene for us and kind of why you chose that story and, 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 and what it speaks to you about?
1: Yeah, so you can't really talk about modern oil trading without speaking to Colin. As you mentioned, he's one of the formative figures in the development of the London oil markets. And he's someone who is incredibly creative and he, in this case, developed a whole trading strategy Around solving a problem. And that problem was that after the end of communism, Russian oil production was in decline. They couldn't get hold of the material. They needed to work the wells. So Colin came up with a fantastic plan to help his counterpart, but also that was a good and profitable trade for his employer. So these are the kind of win-wins that I really enjoy, and that came up again and again in the book. The traders reaching for trades that not just were profitable, but that every side left with a smile on their face. I think that's really nice. People often think about trading as this zero-sum, cutthroat game, but actually, for for people like Colin, it's the best trade is when your counterpart does well as well. When you know the Russians ended up you know getting their supplies and getting them at a better price
0: and we should describe this right so the 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 setting is because i think it's really important because it, it shows how colin's drawing in all parts of the bank to get this deal done because essentially you have declining production from this uh, russian producer and as a result they can't get financing they can't get support from suppliers engineers etc and they can't sell their oil so which is having a devastating impact on the economy of that town And the region more broadly and colin goes there with this idea of that we can essentially do a prepay where we're uh, writing notes that will enable you to get that finance that engineering support the supplies and get production back up i mean as it turns out it wasn't you know necessarily it wasn't the greatest trade on all but it was very much a meaningful one and opened as you say the the russian market
1: yeah absolutely i think that's again something that came up is that some of the most interesting trades weren't in themselves at that moment, the most profitable. I mean, Colin took a team of geologists, of supply engineers, of traders, of bankers, out to a really remote part of Siberia. And they sat there for a good chunk of 1992. I mean, an incredible investment when you think about it in time, the money and effort to make a trade happen. And at the end of the day, the trade worked for a while, but it it wasn't, I'm sure, the most profitable trade he ever did in his career, but it opened the door. So that was what was interesting about it. That trade was innovative and it built relationships and those turned into business over time. So it the trade can be more than its immediate p and I think. That was a good lesson for me.
0: Yeah, yeah. and And I think as well, like, you know, the complexity of you know you, you sort of think of this oil trader as someone who may be quite binary you know or just thinking from an outside perspective, but actually the entire structure of that deal, the scope of it was quite enormous, right you know bringing in all these different stakeholders, you're having conversations at the governmental level, the local government level, you know with the organization themselves it's, you know it was as as the chapter describes the complexity, the labyrinthine bureaucracy to get through to get that done. You know was tremendous and and you know i think uh colin was in the in that town for in siberia for a year
1: yeah i mean that's the incredible range isn't it of oil trading you've got an oil trader that might be you know a desk futures trader that sees a good price and clicks it and that's the execution of his trade and then as you say you've got poor old colin stuck in the hotel in the middle of nowhere For the best part of a year to make his trade happen. They're both oil traders, but they've got completely different perspectives on life and on their careers. That's what I think is so fascinating. Again, oil trading isn't this super narrow thing. You've got everything from these deep physical trades that require huge expertise and upfront investment, through to algo traders that are sat behind their desk watching the computer. Amazing.
0: Yeah, and we're going to talk about sort of some of the commonalities you've teased out of these individuals um, toward the end. But it also kind of struck me as the the adventurism, the creativity, the fact that opportunity in the trading world, and the same goes for metals trading, ags trading, is kind of, it's at the margin, right? It's at the edge. And it is going to these challenging locations, challenging markets, you know, whether that's in your backyard in Texas, <laughs> or whether that's in Siberia, and coming up with these solutions that do require that level of commitment, that level
1: of ability to interact with all these different stakeholders to to pull off. Absolutely right, absolutely right. That's what comes through again and again: is people who are prepared to go that one step further.
0: Yeah, and uh, aren't scared of flying. Yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, <laughs>
1: you know. I think fear <laughs> of flying might rule you out. Yeah. <laughs>
0: post-Soviet Russia. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so so um, that so chapter one that really takes us straight into this that, that you know the world of physical oil trading you know and uh, I think that whole sort of section is that trading arbitrages the next one I wanted to call out is is chapter eight which is the start of the new section of macro and micro trading which is a world away in some senses it's Eric Rubenstein, oil trader on the desk at city the investment bank who is essentially doing his homework and has come up with this this is 2013 2014 has you know done the analysis and you know against basically every other forecast out there when oil is at 100 dollars a barrel has decided that you know has 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 a belief uh, based on the fundamental analytics based on on the deep dive that he's done that oil is going to 50 bucks i find this a fascinating story because the cassandra like figure out there who no one's listening to, but you can, if you're right, you can make a lot of money. Can you set the scene for that chapter?
1: Yeah, so I think Eric felt that, Eric's a big believer in counting barrels. Um, So Eric, as you say, is a real fundamental, takes a very fundamental view of the market. And, you know, he says what he likes about commodities is at some point the buyer and seller have to match at delivery. And that's where you're going to get the true price discovery, right? You're going to find out who's who's keener, which side is keener. And Eric really started to form the view that prices were well overdone and that the market was well oversupplied. And he's, he's, he was pondering, and it took him a while, I think, to to really get the courage of his convictions, that the market would have to fall far enough in 2014 to shut in a lot of the new shale oil production that was coming on at the time in the US. And he also formed the view, which I think history has proved correct, was that for one of the few times in its history, OPEC actually was going to welcome lower prices because it might have a big impact on the shale industry, which they were very worried about at the time. So Eric started coming up with that view. He started looking at all the fundamentals. He started testing that with some of his colleagues on the desk. And then I think the struggle for him was how do you tell the world and the bank's customers and your colleagues on the desk that you really think the oil price might halve? And he talks quite openly about this debate that he they felt that if he went out to customers and said the oil price could go from 100 to 50, a lot of people would just discount that straight away as him trying to be provocative or a fantasist. So he, he would talk about it's going to fall, it's going to fall to the level that production needs to shut in. And he said, as it fell from 100 to 90, he started to be more comfortable about saying it can go a lot lower. But I, I thought that was really interesting that even though he had this conviction, he was still nervous about how you express that because any fall of that magnitude is just going to immediately put some people on the defensive and they're going to stop listening. Of course, events proved him right.
0: Yeah. And and well just to your point there, of course, as well, when you've got a you know, the the, the IB side that obviously, you know, is supporting customers who are banking on oil staying up high, can obviously be quite a challenging environment to do that.
1: Yeah. And one other thing he mentions very clearly is that there were people who said, Well, I could live with 70, I could live with 60, I could live with 50, my competitors probably can't. So I'm not gonna hedge because yeah, some of the high cost producers might get taken out, but I can survive. And of course the market just smashed through everybody's level. So it was really the people that had hedged that lived to fight another day.
0: Yeah, because oil went to 25. (laughs) I I remember being in uh, one of the FT commodity conferences, um, 2014, I guess it was when BP's global head of oil analytics, I think it was early 2015, global head of oil analytics was saying like, look, this is going to stay low four, five years, six years plus. And the, the audible groans in the audience. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, uh, and my wife being in the oil industry was also a bit of an audible groan in my household as well. But um, what, what struck me about this was firstly kind of that doing your homework and taking a view and that perhaps that, how commodities is different to and oil is different to other asset classes is that you kind of get these yes there's lots of volatility but ultimately you get these big moves based on real world economics on the fundamentals on counting barrels as you say and these are the big moves you've got to get right right and it's it's sort of But it can be really daunting, you know, because you've got to be right in the right time frame and you've got to be right in the right magnitude. And ultimately, as as Eric says, you know, he didn't he was expecting $50 an hour, not not 25. But it's, you know, that kind of two or three big moves a year or events, whatever it might be, really are the, the, the make or break for a trader of whatever type.
1: Yeah. And it's the courage of your convictions as well to hold on to that trade because Eric will note that the the big money was made by the guys that went short and stayed short. There were lots of times where the market bans temporarily and people came in and out and tried to get cute and time the market. But actually the real success stories of that period were the guys who went short and stayed short and rode it all the way down so i think if you've got that thesis and you believe in that thesis one of the lessons here was go all in because as you say paul there aren't that many opportunities out there and when there are you've really got to grab them
0: yeah and it's it's okay if you're you know an a, an independent trader but it also points to the importance of being able to articulate your view your man, your thesis to all manner of stakeholders to get it across the line right risk committees whatever it might be but there is that art there as well that a an oil trader needs to be able with whatever flavor oil trader being able to articulate your business case your thesis that's key as well
1: yeah i mean we will talk about their commonalities later but persuasiveness is definitely one of the factors they're a very persuasive bunch of oil traders so you as I know myself, you often find yourself going along with it. So I can imagine how they might be able to talk their way through the risk committees and the and and get their trades done. I love that story. And again, there's a there's a whole
0: bunch further under that that section. You know, you've got uh, Eric and Devlin and Sylvia Lowe and Philip Cohen and Alessandra Liberati. There's one more under there that I wanted to to pick out, which for me was I think the most impactful because it talked about. Knowing the goals and objectives of the organization you're, you're in, and that being a key determinator of how you and your group trade. That's, and, and that's by Shui Zenshu, who um, spent m- many years, uh, 20 years or so, working for various iterations of Sinopec, Sinochem, Unipec, as it came. And his story is called Learning from Misfortune. Can you cover this one and you know frame up the arc of that conversation or that that story for us?
1: yeah, so this was a very fascinating chapter because it's so rare to get someone so senior at a Chinese firm to speak openly and on the record, so you know I was very fortunate that Mr. Shui was able to share his story with me, and he had the really fascinating career which is very open about where He began as a products trader, was doing very well, and was tapped to be secretary to the president of Unipec, which was a fantastic position for a young guy in the middle of his career or the early stage of his career. And he was really set for great things. But then the president of Unipec was fired. And Mr. Shway suffered by association. He was demoted to what he calls basic employee status. And from being the secretary to the main man, suddenly he was put on the oil desk, but with the job of just recording price moves. So as he describes it, he had to sit there and he had to watch the ticker on NYMEX WTI. And every time the price moved more than 20 cents, he had to write a note to his superiors, whether it was 1 a.m., 3 a.m. during the working day. So this was kind of a punishment assignment for him because of the black mark he got from being associated with the former president. But from there, he rebuilt his career first on the freight desk, then with a the JV in Canada. And he actually ended his time at Unipec as the head of the crude oil desk, which is one of the most prestigious roles in the company. So he, he, as you said, Paul, he called his chapter Learning from Misfortune because he felt that all the experiences he went through had made him a better trader. So watching the market sometimes... Virtually all day and all night, he got super sensitive to price moves and super aware of why things were happening, which made him very sensitive to risk once he took over as head of crude.
0: Yeah. The two things I took from that, in addition to that, was firstly, there is his luck, right? There is which mental did you get, you know? And I think all of us can attest to the last 15 years have been extremely volatile for companies and their employees, you know, there are two equally good traders, one might have had a, a stellar career staying at one trading house that entire period, because that trading house did well, and they did well, there might be another who did well, him or herself, but the, you know, the the bank blew up, the hedge fund blew up, or, the you know, whatever it might be, and they've cycled through five different organizations. Um, so there is, you know, not that there's any necessarily learning from that, but there's a, there's a humility from that. The the second thing is that he, he ends up, so he's at the top of Unipec and he basically has these two rules that he puts in place. One is no outright speculative positions and the other is no options. And he's derived that from um, his experiences in the market, understanding the risk, but also the goals of the organization he works for. What is their fundamental focus? You know, and and that's different. That's different between a bank, a hedge fund, an oil trading house, and a refiner and a major. And you know, he says this: "This know thyself." I'm going to quote him here. The most important starting point for a trader is to clearly understand the true nature of the company where they work. That um, that was really powerful to me because I think you know, as a as a recruiter, that's where we often start with our clients. Um, can you talk to that a little?
1: Yeah, I I agree. I thought that was really very insightful in that he says, we're part of a gigantic industrial enterprise. We're a mega refiner in China. Our job is to supply fuel to China. And really what we make as a trading entity is pennies compared to the value add of the refining and the petrochemical and the retail network we have. So as an industrial, our job is to supply our refineries as cheaply as possible, not to necessarily be out there speculating. And as he says, if you want to gamble, go to Macau. Um, but equally, he he's very open. If he had been working at a trading house where he starts the day necessarily without a physical position or without a huge system behind him, he'd have been out there taking more risk. So you're absolutely right. His whole advice to words of advice for young people was know your entity and trade accordingly if you're a, a giant producer behave like that if you're a trading house take more risk
0: yeah it is it, you know i can just think about our own internal training you know there's you you can have exactly the same short resume on paper right as an for an oil trader but they might be in fundamentally different roles and have fundamentally different skill sets um based on what the goals of the organization is or are. So it's um that for me was quite a striking chapter.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. And again, you know, just absolute credit to Mr. Sway for going on the record about, you know, a very interesting but a challenging career path. So the 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 final
0: one of the four that uh I guess I picked um was <laughs> really probably the most entertaining one of the most entertaining stories. In it, which I think kind of highlights this role of uh of, of trader as you know, it's um the creativity, kind of the 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 sleuth, the you know, the the I just it's it's a fascinating story, I don't want to spoil it. So John Cruz Texaco.
1: Yeah, so John, uh, an absolute legend in the US oil markets, and it's funny you picked this one, Paul, because honestly, this is actually my favorite. I feel like I ought to whisper that. It's like admitting to having a favorite child. I love all the 40 contributors, but this one, again, it did really tickle me because, uh, anyway, so I'll, I'll John was uh, running TexCo and he had some quite limited crude oil production down in Texas. Maybe I want to say it's about ten fifteen thousand 15,000 barrels a day that was tied to a local pipeline and it was all working well. Him... Uh, a couple of other people, some independents, they all fed into the pipeline that supplied the refinery not too far away. Everyone's happy. But suddenly the pipeline operator take it into their head to send John a fax, announcing that from now on they're going to be charging $2 more for transport. And this is at a time when that was a significant percentage of his outright oil. oil. Right, Right. There we go. So John didn't take kindly to that and He was particularly offended by receiving that news by fax. That really got his goat. So John decided uh, he was going to get even. And he was essentially going to carry on supplying that pipeline over his dead body. So what he, he told his guys to do was, firstly, round up as many trucks as they could possibly get and bring them down to Texas. And he parked them. When he got the first few trucks, he parked them very strategically so that people all around could see that he was bringing trucks. So he was very open about that. And then the next thing he did was he sent some of his guys out with some uh, with some signal flags to mark out a new pipeline. So he ran he ran a bunch of flags and he planted them along part of way along the existing pipeline that he'd been supplying and partly in full view of kind of the roadway, so that he made sure, again, those were super public. And then he sat back and waited. And a couple of weeks later, he got a call from that refinery, uh, from that pipeline operator saying, John, are you are you going to build a, ref- a new pipeline? And John said, well, I might. I've not ruled it out. We do a lot of things. We've seen that it can be quite profitable getting to the pipeline business in this part of town. So, you know, maybe. And sure enough, a couple of weeks later, they were back at the table with him. And I believe he ended up with a rise instead of a decrease in his oil price. And I just loved the fact that John's only expense in this trade was a bunch of flags and a moving a few few trucks down to Texas and parking them prominently. He essentially bluffed his counterpart into accepting uh, not just a reversal, but a price rise for him, and I just thought, wow, that was so creative, and I guess so brave of him uh, to, to pull that off. That I really admired the way he did that. I, I loved how he framed it,
0: right? Because I think it's also kind of fundamental to the nature of being part of this trading community and being along, having longevity within it. Was you know what got his his goat so to speak was the unfairness with which he was being treated right he, he starts off his chapter talking about how he's always seen business as a goal to get a win-win you know that there's a, a level of decency of fairness you know of, of, of treating customers suppliers in the right way because you know things will, will come back round right you know um, swings and roundabouts as we would say you know, and I think and he was you know, mortally offended quite rightly, you know, by this, you know, and, and, you know, if you're in an MBA class, they might teach you to do that, right? You've got a captive market, raise prices. But as you say, you know, that's what drives this, but the creativity to come up with that, uh, that solution, you know, it was a, it was, it was, it was just fascinating. It was fantastic.
1: Yeah. Lovely. And I, he ends the chapter by saying, you know, even honest people need a little help to stay honest sometimes. But it, it does talk to this kind of broader
0: nature of trading especially physical trading where i mean it's been true forever right you know whether you you put your best furs for sale at the front kind of thing or whatever it might be whatever gambit you're using everything ultimately comes down to it's a market it's about perception it's about you know making bets on future and and the very wily individuals that sit within this that understand how they can accomplish goals without necessarily having to uh you know, as you say, build the pipeline itself. Yeah, and
1: I, I think, again, that it comes back to personality, right? You you have to exert your personality and and you have to have the respect of your peers. I think John, with his reputation, people felt, well, he might just do this. Like, this is a man of his word. If he's threatening to build a pipeline, he might just build that pipeline. And that that came up again and again that you have to be prepared to do what you say you're going to do. Michael Hacking talks in his chapter, he said, you know, you lose money, you come back. But if you don't perform on a trade, you're done in the market. Your word has to be your bond. Which I think is kind of, again, to the outside
0: reader, this isn't a world of skullduggery or deception or or, whatever that might entail. Right. Um, This is a highly creative business where reputation, where performance really does matter. And it's a very tight club. And, you know, there, you know if you fail in those actions, then there can be consequences, you know, of, 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 of you know, no
1: longer being part of it. Yeah, absolutely. It's a people business. And that's clear that it was that from the beginning and it's that right now that Syl- Sylvia Lowe actually says before you trade oil, you have to trade information. And people are more likely to talk to you if they like you. So being a good person, having a good reputation, being sociable, that gets you the information flow that's going to make you a better trader. And I thought that was really interesting. And it explains why so many of the traders that I spoke to or that I speak to every day are such sociable animals. That's a definition of what they need to be successful.
0: Mm. So, okay, so, and there are many you know there's another thirty six stories in the book um which i should i want to emphasize you know that I, what I loved about the book was this just wasn't you know either side of the Atlantic, it was you know global in scope and really spanned through all of those different types of organizations and participants that are in the the oil trading space and each each story was archetypal of a type of trade or a type of, a type of role played by those individuals. But what you've spent 20 years in this business, you've got 40 connects good enough to go on the record for this. Do you see any commonalities? Is it, you know, people who might be considering a career in this or thinking about hiring for their team, you know, what have you
1: divined from this community about the, the attributes they have? Well, we mentioned the social nature, but I think beyond that, there were two other things that really struck me. Um, One was what I would call maybe restlessness. So again and again, people would say, I didn't like inheriting the way it was set up. I wanted to change it. I like to move things around. I like to see if there's a better way of doing things. So I think there's a tremendous restlessness, intellectual curiosity among those guys that I spoke to and beyond. They really do want to, to see how they can make a difference every day. I think a really good trader is constantly challenging the status quo, what they've inherited, the way they've always done things, and that's what gives them the longevity. So that was one hallmark I really noticed. And the other was that they often had one other technical skill, call it beyond just straight oil trading. So a lot of them had come in from the operations desk, so they understood operations really well, or they had a finance background or a background in accounting or so that they were really on top of the nuts and bolts of the trade and their position. A couple of them, something completely different, Gina Malkani, she came out of the car industry, and so she said, you know that's a tough school for keeping your customers happy. So that really gave her that drive. Gary King was a petroleum geologist, so that gave him that credibility when he went in to see a customer. He wasn't just another bank trader. He actually understood the physical. So I think often they had that secondary attribute that helped them stand out as well. All quite diverse
0: backgrounds there, right? This isn't just sort of the, the Oxbridge alum you know, sort of the the Ivy League crowd, right? It's quite a diverse set of individuals. And I think this is true actually across commodity trading and the sector in general, but quite a diverse group.
1: Yeah, I mean, the book we have from school leavers with basic education through to very advanced PhDs in mathematics, some of the cleverer, most academic people you'll ever encounter. And they're all successful crude oil traders. So there's no university course in oil trading, there's no, you know, qualification you can get that says I'm an oil trader. It's that opportunity and that experience. And again, you can't fake it. You can't get into oil trading just because your father was an oil trader or because you went to the right school or university. You're measured every day and every year on your PL. So I think one of the things I like about it is that meritocratic nature of it. You can't bluff it. The PL will find you out.
0: Yeah, yeah. There's that restlessness and there's that sort of, that, that I agree with you on that technical proficiency, kind of what's their edge. But there is this incredible intellectual curiosity shared by all of them, right? I mean, just my own, you know, I know this community very well as well. And, you know, they all have a plethora of of hobbies. I know oil traders have gone on to be billionaires because they've launched a bag company. Um, people will know that that is. You know, but they they, they are just generally... Into everything, highly curious, highly, highly sort of driven by that sort of constant thirst for information, knowledge, opportunity.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's a cohort with a low boredom threshold, I would say.
0: <laughs> so, looking towards the future, you end the book, well, you end your sort of introduction to the book with a few, a little bit of a discussion about the future, because there is this kind of almost competing world right now you know there's increasing digitization everything going to automation everything going to the screen against this backdrop of all these deals got done because of the personal relationships that they had what do you see as you know view as the future of this community will it stay
1: much as it is or are there are there substantial changes going on i think that's that's a great point you make i think The worry that a few people have expressed is that with greater volumes of screen trading and obviously with the restrictions we've all been living under in terms of travel and social, that some of that interpersonal aspect of trading might be going away. And I think that makes people nervous, partly because that's the piece of the business that a lot of them enjoy. When they look back on their career, it's the friendships or the counterparts that they remember, and that's what they enjoyed about it but also there's a, that element of keeping you honest. As you say, it's a tight club. And I think that, that ability to know everybody and understand is what helps to keep people on the straight and narrow and make sure that they don't let other people down. So I think any kind of lack of personal contact and personal knowledge that, that will feed through and that will ultimately harm the market long-term. So that would be a real shame
0: yeah but this is against the backdrop of ever increasing volumes are actively traded um you know this role isn't going away and then we did an episode with Kurt Chapman one of your one of the uh the contributors to the book you know talking about trading itself is only going to be more necessary as we go through energy transition when you even mentioned again in the book decreasing financing for traders you've got degradation of the asset base, the infrastructure, because less investment going into that, you know, and and an increasingly volatile world, you know, as it, when it comes to the market because of energy transition, because of other geopolitical events. I mean, as we talked today, oil's
1: at a is at a six year high? I mean, it's um, this role isn't going away. Yeah, and I think it's really notable that I mean, we've got Juan Carlos Fonegra talking about how he's trying to transform Ecopetrol in Colombia into a trading led organization. And one of the other contributors, Philippe Kouri, has set up a very successful trading business for Adnoc in Abu Dhabi. So trading's not going away. You actually see these traditional big oil companies wanting to add traders and set up trading entities because they also want to capture the value. So you can see there's still a massive demand for traders. Newer, there's new entities entering the market the whole time
0: yeah and we we've certainly you know i think the one of the key drivers of hc globe group has been you know the um the iocs um nocs building out trading capabilities to face just this future to get close to their customer get more margin and you know as again highlighted with kurt chapman it is a small club there aren't many people relatively speaking that have this skill set and there haven't been many people um brought through up into that community over the last five ten years because it just hasn't been the demand so I think we are at a bit of an inflection point where you know it's it's tough to find individuals who who have those attributes who have all of that deep experience you know that can really set up and and also operate these these new organizations and existing ones couldn't agree more well I cannot recommend the book enough I think it will be on uh the shelves of uh, everyone in our in our sector um you know it's a it's, As you say, it's great entertainment, but I think it's also just deeply fascinating an industry, and interesting and a window we pr- you know we haven't previously had on on this community. So it's it's uh, it's published on the thirtieth by Routledge. Um, it's available in all great bookstores and uh, and online ones. And um, you know, I certainly appreciate you uh, coming on to talk
1: about it. Thanks, Paul. been great.
0: Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and HC Group, a search and advisory firm dedicated to the commodity markets, visit our website at www.hcgroup.global. There you can find out more about our services and our offices around the world. There you can also find more content from interviews to insight pieces to more podcasts, focused on the commodity value chains. Thanks again for listening.